In December 2009, Kelly O'Dwyer was elected to the federal parliament in the seat of Higgins following the retirement of uh, Treasurer Peter Costello. She was appointed as a Minister for Revenue and Financial Services in the Turnbull Government in July last year. She's a member of the Cabinet and also serves on the Cabinet's Expenditure Review Committee. She served as a Minister for Small Business and Assistant Treasurer from September 2015 to July last year and was the Parliamentary Secretary to the Treasurer from December 2014 until she was appointed to Cabinet in 2015. She attended Melbourne University, graduating with honours degrees in law and arts, an arts majoring in history. Upon leaving university, she embarked on a legal career at Freehills, where she practised corporate, corporate law. In 2004, she commenced as an economic policy advisor to the Federal Treasurer, Peter Costello. As an advisor and then a senior advisor, she was responsible for several key policy areas, including competition law and competition policy, foreign investment, private equity, corporate and securities law, financial market conduct, corporate governance, accounting policy issues and consumer protection. After the 2000 federal election, she undertook a role as an executive at the National Australia Bank. Kelly's a good friend of CIS, she's been, sort of been hanging around here for a long time. Uh, she's participated in many of our events uh, over the years, including Concilium last year and, and other others. She's also spoken at a leadership lunch when she was a mere assistant minister or whatever you were back then, when we're, when we're over at St Leonard's. But more importantly, she's a graduate of our Liberty and Society student program back in 1998, uh, and then the, then the advanced program 10 years later. So uh, hopefully the ideas are still sticking. Please, please welcome Kelly O'Dwyer. <laughs> No pressure with that introduction. In fact, um, in fact, Greg does remark that I think my husband and I were the first married couple to go to the advanced liberty and society special forum that they do conduct. And I have to commend again the work of the CIS. It's a great, great pleasure to be here and I really appreciate that very warm welcome. Because the Centre of Independent Studies has for so many years now been such a vital, vital vital institution and a strong voice for good public policy in Australia. And it's hard to believe that it was almost two years ago that I was standing before you. And I spoke to many of you on that day about Australia's future prosperity. But I focused particularly in that speech on the importance of fairness to the reform process and the need for good public policy advocates to reclaim the fairness agenda. And it was a speech that you may recall ruffled a few feathers beyond this wall, which I know Greg always likes. Um, and you may recall that on that day I mentioned that I wanted to talk again about enterprise and I didn't have the opportunity during the time that was available to me on that day to explore that in any detail. So that's the theme I'm going to revisit here today. And I'm going to do that in the context of the Turnbull government's plan for tax reform and for delivering greater prosperity for all Australians. Now, as all of you know, we went to last year's election with jobs and growth at the heart of our campaign. That was hardly surprising. Jobs and growth are, after all, how you build a strong and prosperous nation. That is something that the coalition has always understood. And over the course of eight long weeks, these three words were repeated again and again, as political campaigns demand. However, 
while it was undoubtedly the right focus, some at the time dismissed these words as meaningless. Yet nothing could be further from the truth. A growing economy pays for our much-valued social safety net. It pays for our health and our education systems. It pays for national security and vital infrastructure. A growing economy leads to jobs, and jobs create purpose, opportunity and security, bolstering living standards and our economy. Ultimately, though, the bedrock on which jobs and growth are founded is enterprise. After all, 87% of all jobs in Australia are in the private sector. And it will be enterprise that continues to not only shape our present, but also our future. Encouraging enterprise must be the driving force behind reforms to Australia's tax system. Reward for effort, not the politics of envy, is the way forward if we are to prosper in these rapidly changing times. And this is especially evident when it comes to company tax. Australia's company tax rate, as most of you know, has remained at 30% for more than 15 years. Over that period, many other countries have moved to reduce their rates. It means that today, our company tax rates are too high by international standards. 15 years ago, Australia had the ninth lowest corporate tax rate amongst advanced economies. Today, only five of the 35 countries in the OECD have a corporate tax rate higher than ours. In 2014, Australia's corporate taxation was 4.7% of gross domestic product, while the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development's average was 2.8%. Times have changed. So what does that mean? As economies become more open, barriers to investment have a greater impact on economic growth. A high company tax environment means Australian companies have more difficulty in attracting funding, making them less able to invest in their businesses, in their machinery, their technology, and in their workers. A high tax environment means companies are less productive and it means foreign investors are discouraged from doing business here. It is, in short, a tax on jobs and a tax on growth. And it is everyday Australians who pay for that. So we need our Australian taxation system to be more competitive. The Turnbull government's 10-year enterprise tax plan begins with tax cuts for small and medium-sized companies and will eventually lead to a flat tax rate of 25% for all companies. This rate would be consistent with the current average combined company tax rate across OECD countries, which has declined from 32% in 2000 to 25% in 2015. It is an important move and, as I have said, a much needed one. Many countries that we are competing with for investment have more attractive company tax rates and are even looking to reduce them further. As we've heard recently, President Trump would like to see the US tax rate come down from the current level of 35% to somewhere closer to 15%. Further north, Canada, a country that is comparable to Australia in size and natural resources, has reduced its company tax rate by more than 20% over the past decade. 
while in our region, Singapore has cut its rate from 20% to 17% between 2007 and 2010. It is also worth pointing out that many countries have managed to do this while simultaneously improving their budget bottom line. In 2010, for example, the newly elected UK government was faced with the aftermath of the financial crisis and a budget deficit of around 10%. Despite this, they announced and they implemented phased company tax reductions to spur growth. Under the UK government's roadmap, tax rates have dropped from 28% to 20% and are scheduled to fall further to 17%. Over the same period, the UK's budget deficit decreased to around 4% of GDP. These lower tax rates have supported a steady and sustained recovery in business investment, which has increased nearly 25% in the six years to March 2016. And across the Tasman, New Zealand has cut its company tax rate from 33% to 28% between 2008 and 11, while also returning its budget to surplus. So with that in mind, the idea that reducing company tax would damage the budget or is in some way misguided or an unworthy pursuit is incredibly short-sighted. Of course such actions cannot be taken without firm commitment to budget discipline, but it is false to suggest that tax cuts or budget discipline is an either-or choice. Indeed, last night, the independent governor of the Reserve Bank, Philip Lowe, said, like other countries, we face the challenge of responding to international tax competition while achieving a balance between recurrent spending and fiscal revenue. But maybe, just maybe, we should think about it another way. At the moment, the UK is like a petrol station, hanging a headline price of 20 cents out the front for international investors. The UK sign has been gradually ticking down and business has been performing well, so much so that it's looking to lower it further to 17 cents. The US is talking about hanging a sign saying 15 cents and making the station more user-friendly. New Zealand's petrol station was losing money a few years ago and while it still has a premium price, it has lowered the price by 5 cents to 28 cents, helping it back into the black. It's a similar story in Canada. Now, the Australian petrol station is fantastic. It has a reputation for great customer service and a reliable product. But how do we think it's going to go if it keeps hanging 30 cents out the front? Australian modelling predicts that reducing the company tax rate from 30% to 25% would secure a permanent increase in business investment of up to 2.9% over the long term, which is equivalent to around $6.5 billion in today's dollars. This translates to a permanent expansion of the size of, the Australia, of Australia's economy by more than 1% over the long term, as well as an increase in real wages. The opposition argue that a cut in the company tax rate will advantage those foreign companies that have been involved in aggressive tax minimisation in Australia. The government is clear that all taxpayers must pay the right amount of tax in Australia. We don't believe in self-help approaches to tax reform. 
Our actions support our determination to ensure that Australia receives taxes that reflect the extent of their economic activity in Australia. And this week, the government has introduced the Diverted Profits Tax, which complements the government's 2015 legislation introducing the multinational anti-avoidance law. So why is there such scepticism about a company tax in the community and a cut in company tax in the community? The craven politics of perpetual opposition has certainly played a part. So rather than enjoying bipartisan support on the merits and concept of a company tax cut from Labor, we have the spectacle of the shadow treasurer and leader of the opposition denouncing a policy that they once supported. It's not all that long ago that the shadow treasurer Chris Bowen said in his book, Hearts and Minds, it's a Labor thing to have the ambition of reducing company tax because it promotes investment, creates jobs and drives growth. He went on to acknowledge at 30%, our company tax rate is now above the OECD average. It is how the rate compares to that of our competitors that counts. Similarly, the leader of the opposition, Bill Shorten, used to regard company tax cuts as an economic and social good. He said, any student of Australian business and economic history since the mid-1980s knows that part of Australia's success was derived through the reduction in the company tax rate and also that cutting the company income tax rate increases domestic productivity and domestic investment. More capital means higher productivity and economic growth and leads to more jobs and higher wages. Undoubtedly in the Twitter age, there is also a challenge in holding people's attention long enough to win the argument. After all, the arguments I have articulated necessarily take more than 140 characters to articulate, let alone substantiate. But in truth, I think the real problem is that for those of us who are economically responsible, we have spent too much time arguing the utilitarian argument and not enough time prosecuting the values case. We need to argue both. So yes, we, the government, the Centre for Independent Studies, and those who are engaged in the national discussion who believe in responsible economic policy need to spell out the case for lower competitive corporate taxes. We need to argue that Australia is reliant on external capital. We need to explain that we have run a current account deficit for 49 out of the past 50 years. We need to explain that this means that we rely on international capital to support job creation across the economy and our standard of living. And we need to explain that capital is mobile and that Australia's tax rate needs to be internationally competitive in a world where other advanced economies have lowered their tax rates. We need to explain that employees and the underemployed and the unemployed seeking work are the key beneficiaries of reduced company tax with years of research showing that company tax is overwhelmingly a tax on workers and their salaries. These are compelling arguments and we need to make them. But even more importantly, we need to better define what enterprise really means, what companies are, and to make sure they are seen for what they are. Collections of individuals who are in turn members of families and communities. It's too easy to think of companies as large, disconnected, impersonal masses. In an era where many accept our nation faces significant challenges, 
but few are prepared to accept change in government policy that might affect them, large, disconnected, impersonal masses are an easy target. Few have instinctive sympathy for them. Indeed, many have antipathy. But we need to recognise and highlight that companies are simply vehicles for individuals. Regardless of size, they represent individuals voluntarily coming together to take risk and to invest their capital. Sometimes those funds are invested directly, sometimes through superannuation funds. But ultimately, the funds come from individuals' salaries or pockets. Companies also represent individuals voluntarily coming together to work as employees or contractors, to provide for themselves and their families, and to pursue the dignity that comes with that. And they provide goods and services for other individuals to enjoy. So taxes on companies are taxes on individuals. That's true regardless of size. It's easier to see for small incorporated businesses, but it's also true for listed companies. That places a strong moral obligation on governments to keep that tax as low as reasonably possible. Any tax on an individual, whether direct or indirect, no matter how justifiable, is ultimately an infringement on that individual's freedom. That is a compelling argument in its own right. But with company tax, there is the added dimension that the tax hits individuals who are actively seeking to get ahead or to be self-reliant. Individual investors wanting growth finding, uh, find, find their companies face high cost of capital and less incentive to take risks that growth necessarily entails. In turn, that can lead to lower capital growth and lower long-term returns for those individuals. Hard-working employees seeking independence from the government teat find that companies employing them have a lower profit pool available for wage growth and less capital to draw upon to support their jobs. Those out of the workforce wanting a job find that companies distribute profits to shareholders rather than investing in growth and the new jobs that come with it. Customers who are looking to spend their hard-earned wages find their suppliers are not investing as heavily or as quickly in order to, uh, to deliver lower prices or improve services. And that's a critical point. There are some who would have you believe that reducing company tax only benefits a few. In reality, however, most of the long-term benefits of a lower company tax rate will go to workers and households through increases in after-tax real wages and permanently higher consumption. So rewarding companies for their efforts and encouraging enterprise would be a win for all Australians. But it is not only reducing company tax that can make a difference. As I said, enterprise is about everyone in the community. Individuals like my grandparents, Alec and Gwen, who started a small business from their rented home. She made felt ties and he sold them door to door. That enterprising spirit later led them to open a milk bar and then a grocery store. Each endeavour was a risk, a risk that fortunately delivered rewards. They employed people and gave their children the opportunities that they never had. And I stand before you today as a beneficiary of their endeavours. And it is why I, along with my colleagues, know that you create growth and deliver jobs by supporting enterprise, not discouraging it. 
To do this, people also need more money in their pockets and the belief that if successful, they will be rewarded. That is why the government has, under our tax plan, already lowered personal tax and further reductions will remain a goal for us. Because Australia, I'm sure we can all agree, relies too much on personal income taxes, particularly when compared to other developed countries and our Asian neighbours. In fact, Australia's reliance on income taxes remains largely as it was in the 1950s and is projected to increase further as a result of bracket creep. This phenomenon, which is really a stealth tax, reduces incentive and proportionally affects lower and middle income earners much more than high income earners. So, as I have said, we have made a start on preventing that from happening. Last year, we delivered through the parliament an increase in the upper threshold for the middle tax bracket, raising it from $80,000 to $87,000, which took effect from the 1st of July 2016. This action provided modest relief for more than 3 million hard-working Australians and will keep around half a million people out of the second highest tax bracket until 2019-2020, rather than, as was scheduled, uh, this current financial year. In short, it maintains that the reward for effort that was being eaten away by bracket creep will be returned to them, and it will also help to keep Australia more competitive. In similarity to company tax, many of our overseas competitors are promising to reduce tax levels on labour income and decrease a number of tax brackets that are used. For example, in the US, the Trump administration has committed to reducing the number of income tax brackets from seven to three and lower tax rates. And in the UK, the personal allowance, which is similar to our tax-free threshold, is being increased, as is the threshold for the 40% rate. This is something that the government is very conscious of. We live in an age where people are more mobile than ever before. And that means that they can go to where the rewards are the greatest. We need to make sure that we continue to attract and retain talent so that they can contribute to making Australia a more prosperous nation. So let me finish by thanking the Centre for Independent Studies for once again inviting me to speak to you. Our agenda is one that is delivered by our belief in enterprise, our determination to support bold endeavours and to reward Australians for their efforts. That is the way forward in 2017 and beyond. Thank you.